Hi, this is Jeannie Patel-Thompson from ListenToYourGut.com. I specialize in natural healing for digestive diseases. And today I'm absolutely thrilled to talk to Dr. Paul Goldberg. Our topic is Medicalizing Life's Problems. Dr. Goldberg is a clinical epidemiologist, clinical nutritionist, and chiropractic physician. He's also a professor at Life University in Georgia and the director of the Goldberg Clinic for Chronic Disease Reversal. So Paul's an awesome person to talk to because he is not only a fantastically qualified doctor, but he has healed himself of ulcerative colitis and rheumatoid arthritis and remained in vibrant health for over 30 years. He can be reached at thegoldbergclinic.com. That's www.goldberg, G-O-L-D, B as in Bob, E-R-G, clinic.com. So Paul, thank you so much um, for joining me today. And I know that, you know, we've, we've talked about this topic before personally, and I really wanted to bring this into the public realm because I think you have so many, you have such an important perspective on, you know, whether you go to an alternative physician or a functional doctor or an integrative medical physician, they all seem to be using the same approach, which is to come in, see what you've got or diagnose you with something and then put you on herbs and supplements. It's so it's basically, using natural medicine in the exact same way we've used drug medicine. Oh, here's your problem, here's your pill. And the difference is just that the pill is a natural origin or natural derivative, but it's really the same type of treating the symptom and not the cause and not setting the body up to utilize its own healing mechanism. And I think a lot of us, we don't even feel that our body is capable of healing itself anymore. We feel that, well, we have to have an herb or a supplement or a bioidentical hormone. And I want you to talk a little bit about that and tell me what's happening in your clinic and what are you seeing um, patients coming in with and and what are you feeling are the problems with that? Thanks, Jenny. And uh, it's good to talk with you again. I think you encapsulated our topic really well there, and a lot of people are going to a lot of doctors, including our own clinic in Atlanta, and they're feeling a lot of frustration. They're going from doctor to doctor to doctor, and usually the scenario is they're going to seek out conventional medicine first. So they're entering into the realm of uh, corticosteroids and uh, antibiotics and uh, uh, synth hormonal replacements such as Synthroid. And when they they find that that has failed them, then they're going to seek, um, and it has reached a pretty high point where so-called alternative medicine has become very popular in our society. And they're looking, the patient is frustrated, and they're looking for a new approach, so they're going to go to the, the very, very large world of alternative medicine. And that that whole world of alternative medicine is is actually been around for a long time, but it started to hit its heyday uh, probably in the mid um, early to mid seventies, and it has grown exponentially since then. And as it has attracted the population, as more people find out about this alternative medicine, um, it has grown a lot, not just in terms of people visiting it and going to it but also in terms of the financial rewards for practitioners that engage in it. So it's attracted a lot of people into it, to the point now that a lot of uh, insurances are actually uh, covering aspects of alternative medicine. And that's all fine and dandy. The problem is, as you stated, that it's not exactly what people might think it is because they're not really exiting the world of medicine 
when they go from conventional medicine to alternative medicine, which can be called holistic medicine, functional medicine, integrative medicine, complementary medicine, they're still in the world of medicine, and it is the same model. And when they enter that world, it may be that instead of taking a steroid, uh, such as prednisone, for an anti-inflammatory response, uh, they're taking a more natural derivative called cortisol or Cortef. But it's the same thing. Rather than taking an aspirin, they're taking willow bark. But, Ginny, it's really the same thing. Whether they're still looking at things from a much, much different perspective than what they should be. So I'm going to suggest one thing we can talk about a little bit in this regard, and that's the topic of inflammation. And I'll ask you, Ginny, do you hear a lot of people talking about problems with inflammation? Absolutely. I think that the whole, um, you know, most people that I hear from, and not even just in my, my business, my work, but in my personal life, are people with autoimmune inflammatory conditions. So definitely there's something really wrong with the way everybody is living and eating. Um, or, you know, is it toxins in our environment? Is it things that we can't even avoid? Like there's a, there's just not a lot of clarity as to, you know, what even creates this inflammatory condition in the first place. Right. So when a person goes to a medical practitioner, they can have arthritis, bursitis, tendonitis, appendicitis, we got uh, nephritis, we have long lists of itises. And when somebody generally goes to a medical physician, they're going to be treated for some manifestation of inflammation. And that could take the form of anything from a steroid to aspirin to a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug to one of these biologicals such as Embril or Humira or Remicade. In all cases, the physician is attempting to suppress the inflammation as if there is, as if inflammation is the problem. And I'm going to make a suggestion here. My suggestion, as I would tell a patient, is inflammation is never the problem. And to most people, that sounds pretty crazy. So when they go to an alternative practitioner, they say, I have arthritis, bursitis, tendonitis, colitis, whatever the itis is, and all that means is an inflammation of some different body part, that practitioner may not give them uh, prednisone. He may not give them Humira. He may not give them a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. He's going to give them a large dose of fish oil or willow bark or turmeric or cucumarin. Again, something to suppress the inflammatory response. My issue is, and why I think that is just as big a mistake, is that inflammation, again, is never the problem. Inflammation is symptomatic of a problem. And what is inflammation? Inflammation is the body's reaction to something wrong with the body that it is trying to cre- uh, correct. So, for example, if you fall down and you hit your knee, you're going to get inflammation there, at least temporarily. It's going to get red. You've injured the area, and the body is going to bring uh, cells in the bloodstream to that area to try to repair it. So you're inflamed. Well, that's the body trying to heal itself. That is one of the most basic ways in which the body protects itself is through inflammation. Can I I jump in right from that example? So because this is classic, you sprain your knee and your knee swells up, 
and everyone from your chiropractor to on down says to you, oh, ice it, because you want to bring down that swelling and inflammation. So, but if if the body is creating heat and fluid in an attempt to heal, based on what you're saying and the direction you're taking us in, how should you treat that injured knee? I would recommend that they not treat it necessarily at all, but that they rest it, that they stop using it and allow that inflammation to die down. Yes, it may be true that by icing it will make it feel better, and in most cases it's not that harmful to temporarily put some ice on it, but they're not really expediting healing, nor are they helping the body to heal. And the same is true when the doctor gives the steroid, except in this case they are damaging the, the, the body by giving a steroid. And I would also say that it's not addressing the problem at all when the alternative, holistic, integrative, complementary, whatever doctor gives them some turmeric or some supplement which says it's an anti-inflammatory like Inflamex or some other brand name, whatever it might be, uh, to, to address the problem. There's a big confusion there, and that confusion is that inflammation is the problem. Inflammation is never the, not the problem. The problem is what's causing the inflammation. So let me give you an example. If I, if I was uh, neurotic, which some people might say I am perhaps, if I just stood there and just scratched my skin over and over and over again, I just kept scratching it, eventually my body's going to respond by trying to heal the damage I'm doing, and it would send red blood cells, white blood cells. It would send increased blood flow into that area to bring in nutrients and carry away waste so the skin will get reddened. So I continue to scratch myself, and I don't stop doing it. And then I go to a doctor, holistic or uh, alternative or conventional, and I show them my arm. I say, you know, the skin is turning red, and it's worrying me, and it's, it hurts, and I'm still scratching it. And the doctor simply says, here's some steroid cream. Put it on there. Okay? And so I'm still scratching it, and the, the inflammation dies down a little bit, but soon it's come back again. And I go back to him again. I said, it's still there. And he says, oh, well, let's try something stronger. Let me give you a Medrol pack, and we're going to start you at 60 milligrams of prednisone and work on down. And so the scenario is clear there that I haven't addressed the problem. So the same thing is true if I go to the integrative complementary doctor, holistic, whatever we call them, and he says, okay, I see you're getting inflamed, and we're going to put you on a large doses of fish oil, or I'm going to get concumarin or tumorac or whatever it might be. And so the situation is the same. Inflammation is not the problem. It's the result of some problem. And the problem in this case and the, I, that I just use as a, as a, a hypothetical is that I'm scratching myself. I need to stop scratching myself. There's lots of things that people do where it's almost as silly as if they're scratching themselves, uh, and, the, and the doctor doesn't look for those causes, and sometimes they're pretty simple. Stop the cause, and then the inflammation will have no result to no need to occur. So if someone comes to you, and whatever the, the label for what they're experiencing, but it's inflammation is, um, you know, the the overall problem, where do you go in terms of investigating, okay, inflammation is your signal that something's wrong and your body's trying to heal it. How do you go about discerning what is wrong? Because what I'm hearing you say is inflammation is like a, a symbol. It's a message. It's a message that something else, something deeper or something, um, you know, maybe all-encompassing even, you know, maybe you're doing something like you're not basically not getting enough sleep, for example. I mean, isn't that alone enough to put someone in an inflammatory state? Yeah, that's a great example because a lack of sleep is definitively, definitively pro-inflammatory. 
And in fact, um, I don't know if I ever shared this with you, Jenny. I think maybe perhaps I have. I had a patient just recently that came in, and they'd been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. And uh, they had been to a number of doctors, including conventional and alternative doctors, before they came to our clinic. And in just doing the interview, and I, I, I regard the interview of the patient as being the most important thing that we do in practice. And there's a physical exam that's important. Laboratory work is also very important. But if I had a look at the three of them, the interview trumps everything. And we allot usually an hour and a half to see a new patient, and most of that is taken up with the interview because it's that time that I'm going to, going to talk with the patient, allow the patient to be comfortable with me and for myself to be comfortable with them and learn about them personally, and then to direct my interview or interrogation, if you might want to say, to try to discover what's wrong. And if, if I've done my job well, by the end of that interview, I should have a pretty good idea. I may not know exactly, but I should have a pretty good idea what's probably occurring with that patient and why it's occurring and the physical exam, the laboratory testing, to a large degree, should be to confirm what my hypothesis is based on the interview. So I'm interviewing this patient. She's about 45 years old, and she's got this chronic fatigue. She's tired all the time, and it's affecting her life in a lot of ways. She can't function well. She's having trouble doing being a good mom. She's having trouble being a good wife. And she's not enjoying her life because, you know, if you're tired all the time, it puts a real damper on, on the joys of, that life has to offer us. So I'm interviewing her, and one of the questions I asked her, I said, what time do you go to bed at night? Not necessarily what time do you fall asleep, but what time do you go to bed? That's a simple question. And she said generally about 2 to 3 o'clock in the morning. I said, uh-huh, and you do that as a general rule? She said, yes. What time do you get up? Well, i got to get up, she says, about 6.30 or 7 to get the kids off to school. Okay. All right. Um, did any of you, these four or five doctors, conventional or three or four alternative that you saw, ask you that question? No. Nobody ever asked me that. They were, she was taking a variety of pills, and some were for anxiety, some were stimulants, and then some were the equivalent of that within the nat so-called natural realm. None of those addressed what was going on with her. Now, I'm using this as an example because I think it's an extreme example of where doctors are not doing their job as being a detective. So I said to her, okay, we don't really have to go any farther with this. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to start going to bed at 9.30 every night, at seven days a week. And then I want you to come back. I want you to keep a log what time you go to bed at. You come back and see me in 30 days. She comes back in 30 days, and not too surprisingly, her fatigue is gone. And she didn't understand what had happened exactly. I said, well, you obviously you went to bed, and your body had a time to recharge its batteries. If they, the body doesn't have time to recharge its batteries, healing doesn't occur, ATP can't accumulate, and you're not going to function well. So that's a simple case, but it's an important one, and it's amazing how oftentimes doctors don't look for these simple things as to how a patient's behaviors in this case uh, affected them. Now, along with, by the way, her fatigue, she was experiencing quite a bit of uh, muscle pain and joint aches, not to the point where she was swelling or anything, but she was having quite a bit of muscular pains and aches, and that went away too. Wow. Without magnesium. <laughs> <laughs> without magnesium, without steroids, and without aspirin. So my question is, um, that intrigues me, um, because my questions would my first question would be, okay, what is making her go to bed? 
at 2 or 3 a.m.? Like, is it the combination of stimulants and meds, or is it just that she's a night owl and she gets she comes alive after midnight? Or So that's question number one. And question number two is, why did you choose to have her go to bed at 9.30? Okay, well, I'll answer the second one first. I, had her, I chose her to go to bed at 9.30 because she was clearly sleep deficient, and I wanted her to get to bed at a reasonable time. And if I told her to go to bed when the sun went down, which would be probably the optimal, is what nature uh, intended for us to do, um, she wouldn't do it. And I can, I can relate to that because I don't go to bed when the sun goes down either, although it would be a good idea. So I gave her what I thought would be a reasonable time, and I did ask her. I said, what time do your kids go to bed? And she said, about 9.30. I said, go to bed with them. Go to bed at the same time. And I'm sorry, what was the first, what was the first question? And then the first question was, um, why was she going to bed at 2 and 3 in the morning? Is it because of oh, the stimulants right, right. or she was just a creative night owl type of person or what? I think in general what happens is in our society is that we've turned uh, night into day. And, you know, part of that is just thank you, Thomas Edison or whoever invented the light bulb that we, we now are able to take the darkness, what nature intended us to go into retreat and, and sleep, and we're able to turn that into what we at least imagine to be productive time. So we turn the night into day, and then we have uh, entertainment that can go on into the night. And another thing I think that leads to it, too, is we work during the day, and people want to have some downtime. I understand that. And they want to be um, get get some relief from their worries and anxieties and pressures from their everyday labors, so they stay up night in order to uh, get some of that uh, pleasure from whatever they're doing at night. And for a lot of people, as you're suggesting, is that they just simply have too much to do during the day, and they're trying to catch up on all the their their two jobs and their family and everything else that they have uh, by staying up late at night. So I think it's become a behavioral thing in, in our culture starting with things like the Tonight Show and the Late Show and the Late Late Show, where we simply have lost this uh, sense of reality, the sense of what what is balance, how do you keep an orderly life, what are natural laws that all the animal kingdom understand. If you're a daylight animal, you go to bed when basically when the sun goes down. And if you're a nighttime animal or a nocturnal animal like an owl, then that's the time when you're more active. But we've kind of lost that instinctive sense about us. It's interesting for myself because if I, and I don't watch TV at all in the evenings, um, I read and I do art or something like that, um, but if I let myself go to bed when my body naturally wants to go to bed, I'm going to bed at around 2 in the morning. And and then I've, and that was since puberty. Before puberty, I would get up with the sun and I would go to bed at 9.30. And then something, and I've watched my daughter, who's again also a very creative person, she hits puberty, same thing happens to her. So I think there's also something going on, and, and there's also you know, a, a surge of energy that I've noticed comes in at midnight. So then when I've tested it and I've made myself be in bed with the light off before midnight, I actually need less sleep. So I'll need, um, if I go to bed at 2, I'll need a full 8 hours sleep. But if I go to bed at 12 or 11.30 or 11, I only need a six and a half to seven hours sleep, and that's both in both of those instances. I don't set an alarm clock. I just wake up when my body is rested and feels, oh, great, I have lots of energy. Let's get up. Well, I, I have found too that if people go to bed early, I, I usually tell people you can go to bed at this time at nine or ten and get up as early as you like, 
and it's a general rule, and I've seen this uh, just from experience, that the hours before midnight are generally the most restorative hours. Now, the other thing that happens, and you were leading to, suggested this, I think, what you were saying, is that people do sometimes get a surge of energy, and I ask people about this on our questionnaire we give them. If around uh, 8, 9, 10 o'clock they get a second surge of power of energy and they feel more creative during that time, and this is, I can't give you necessarily scientific evidence behind this, but my hypothesis is that if a person has not retired by 9 or 10 at night, then for a lot of people what happens, the body feels like it's in an emergency condition, and it's got to wake the body up. It's got to keep going because there's maybe there's somebody after you or you have some crisis situation for which energy has to be supplied. And so for a lot of people, and I'm the same way, uh, if they stay up 9, 10, 11 o'clock, they will get a second surge. And you hear that from a lot of people. However, if they go to bed, uh, those people still will have problems in the morning. They may not feel very energetic the next day. And I think that is probably why some people will stay up very, very late into the morning hours because they feel that they're getting more of an energetic boost. However, if they were to start going to bed at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock and get those hours before midnight, they'll find that they can you can develop a new sleep cycle. And for some folks, some patients, I have to kind of be the sergeant there and tell them, you're going to go to bed 9 o'clock, 9.30, 10 o'clock, and you can get up as early as you want. But um, I tell them you must get up by a certain hour because that will allow them then the next night to start getting tired at around 9 or 10 o'clock. But if they if they go to bed at, uh, you know, 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, they sleep till 10, that cycle continues. So we got to get them to bed early and get them up early and reestablish those normal sleep cycles. So what time do you make them get up in the morning? If they're having these sleep problems, I, if I have them get to bed at 9, I want to make sure that, and they're going to have trouble doing that the first night, for maybe even the first week or so. Then I want them to get up really early. I'll tell them up, up at 6. Even if you're tired at that time, I want you up at 6. And these are people that may have been, may have been used to sleeping until 10 or 11 o'clock. I, I sometimes uh, have parents dragging their college-age kids and these kids are, are run down, they're developing diseases already, and early diabetes, early autoimmune disorders, and uh, they're only 18, 19, 20 years old. And a lot of them, uh, the parents never really look into this very carefully, and neither did the doctors. They're partying till late at night, they're, they're smoking grass, they're, they're, they're drinking alcohol, plus they're staying up till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and oftentimes they're partying and then they're studying. And then they may sleep till 10 or 11 the next day and then get up for classes. So I say, okay, you're going to get to bed early, but you're not going to sleep till 10 o'clock. Uh, the next day, you're going to also get up early, so we can reestablish these normal sleep cycles. There's a lot of people on, on sleep medications now, including young people. Uh, and it's, it's getting pretty alarming. I see a lot more people taking prescription uh, sleep medications than we used to. So what we have here, again, getting directly tied into this medicalization of life's problems we have people that are just kind of disobeying the natural cycles of life, and rather than tell them, and this is a, I think this is a good example, you need to start correcting your sleep cycles, which is done real easily. We don't have to prescribe a drug or an herb or anything for you. You're going to go to bed early, you're going to get up early, and you're going to see that things will start normalizing out. You know, there was a fellow named Otto Buchinger who was pretty famous he, uh he was the founder of the Buchinger Clinics in, in Europe, and he had rheumatoid arthritis as a young man. And the basic way he got, and he was a physician himself, 
And the basic way he got well was he started living a life in the realm of order. He started going to bed early, getting up early, and his rheumatoid arthritis uh, went away. He normalized other areas of his life as well. Uh, and that term, life, living life in the realm of order, I wish that was my line, but it's not. It's Dr. Buchinger's line. And uh, even to this day, there's, some Buchinger, there's a Buchinger clinic in Germany. So aside from the um, adequate sleep, which, you know, it sounds so basic that, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, and I know about that. But, you know, as we've talked about it, and, and I could go even more in depth with you, you know, if we had a whole lot more time than we do, but it's really revolutionary. And I want you to also talk about um, another cornerstone, you know, one of your foundations of health. I want you to talk about sunlight because... I think that's another thing that is not understood. People don't understand how much skin they need to expose, how long they need to expose it for. They don't understand how vitamin D is actually, um, you know, converted or processed or made by the skin. Could you speak about that, like educate us on that foundation of health? Okay. And I'm going to tie that into the medicalization of life's problems, too. Mm -hmm. um, for many, many years, and you can look back even at uh, Osler's textbook of medicine, which was a standard textbook used by medical students uh, as far back as probably 1910, 1915. And William Osler, M.D., was a, was a brilliant guy, um, and he wrote this textbook, um, which was used, as I said, as a standard text in almost all medical schools. And in that textbook and in other medical textbooks of the time, including into current times, there are constant warnings about people that they shouldn't go into sunlight. And, in fact, it was almost a principle of medical care that for a sick person you kept them in a dark room, devoid of light, with the shades and shutters drawn. It was also, by the way, a, a fairly basic tenant that you would never give that person anything that was uncooked to eat, and you should keep them away from fruits and vegetables, and basically the diet was wine and uh, bread and meat. And those were the basic things that were used. But not to get off the topic here, they wanted them to shun the light. And that has been a, a theme that has been used medically uh, for many, many years, and in fact, right up to the current time. And so the person is warned, not just by the dermatologist, but even by the general practitioner and the internist, that they should avoid sunlight basically at all, cause, uh, all, all costs. And when you go outside, keep yourself well covered up, and make sure you slather on a lot of this rather toxic uh, suntan lotion that people use. All right, well, we are sun creatures. We are creatures of sunlight. All life on this planet revolves around the sun. In fact, the Earth itself, as we all know, revolves around the sun. There is nothing on this planet which doesn't require sunlight other than maybe some mold or fungus, the um, particular nutrient and biological needs of mold and fungus I'm not certain of. But certainly all mammals and uh, reptiles and fish and plants all one way or another rely upon the life-giving properties of the sun in order to live. And when we don't receive it, to me, it's almost as if we were depriving ourselves of water or of food or of rest and sleep or any other of the necessities of life. And yet the medical system has told us not to subject ourselves to it. Well, over the past uh, probably 15, 20 years, there have been so many studies that have shown that epidemiologically that people that get more sun have less autoimmune disorders of all kinds.
people to get more sunlight in terms of populations have less inflammatory bowel disease of all kinds. People that get more sunlight suffer with far less depression uh, as population goes. And in fact, when I was in uh, school, the School of Public Health at the University of Texas at the medical center there, one of the first things they taught us in one of my early epidemiologic uh, classes, epidemiology classes, was that people who live closer to the equator had less of all these autoimmune disorders, including multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis. And as they got farther away from the equator, incrementally, these diseases increased. So there was clearly something that was involved with having greater exposure to sunlight that decreased the number of many types of degenerative diseases. So the evidence has piled up over the years, Jenny, to the point where the medical system could no longer deny that there was something valuable about sunlight. And looking at this from a scientific method, where oftentimes they're looking at the trees rather than the forest, they see that there's this thing called vitamin D. All right, let me clarify something, which you know, but for anybody else who's listening, let me clarify something about vitamin D. Vitamin D, and I, I'll tell dietitians and medical doctors this right to their face, is not a vitamin. It is, does not at all meet the definition of a vitamin. A vitamin, by definition, is something that is essential to the body, that you have to receive in the diet, and that's the only way you can receive it. If you can receive it, if you can make it on your own or you can receive it in some other way, it's not a vitamin. So vitamin D, number one, is not a vitamin. It is, by definition, really, it's a hormone. It's a hormone. Well, why call it a vitamin? Well, because to me, or to the system at least, it allows some control over it where it can then be made a prescription item. And so in recent years, I, I never saw this 40 years ago when I started practice. Now I see a lot of medical doctors testing for vitamin D levels. And when they find it low, what do they tell the patient to do? They don't tell them to go in the sun. They write them a prescription for 50,000 IUs of vitamin D because that's what the medical literature tells them to do. And this includes, by the way, those who are practicing so-called alternative medicine. I see the same thing. 50,000 IUs of vitamin D, so-called vitamin D, is a toxic dose. And vitamin D, make no mistake about it, can be very toxic, extremely toxic. It can even be fatal if a person gets too large an amount of it. Now, here's an interesting thing. Number one, it's not a vitamin. And number two, if we receive it the way we're supposed to receive it, which is through the rays of the sun, it is not toxic because the body will convert only what it needs into uh, 70-hydrocholesterol and then into cholecalciferol, and that's it. And when it has enough, it shuts off the, trans the uh, transformation process. Look at all of our ancestors. They were in Africa, in South America, in Central America, wherever in Europe, wherever they might live. They were out in the sun all the time. Did they have all the skin cancer we have now? No, they didn't. And yet they were out in the sun a whole bunch. Of course, they did use some common sense with it. They didn't go out in the midday sun and, and naked and just burn themselves like that. When it got hot, they, they sought shade. But they spent long hours out in the sunlight. And if you watch your dog and your cat, they like to get out in the sun too. But if it's too hot outside, they go seek the shade of a tree. It's interesting you, you bring that up because 
I was born in Kenya, and I'm half Indian. And then we would go on holidays, and, you know, summertime would come, and I would point out to my kids, we would laugh, even though my kids are mostly white. I go, look at the white people. I go, they don't know how to be in the sun. They are out there in the midday, and they burn themselves on the first day of their vacation. And so just even the basics of teaching my kids, you know, you have to build up a base, and you, you do it slowly over time, and you do it in the non-peak hours of the sunlight. But my kids, none of them use sunscreen. None of us have. And my husband, who's, you know, purely English and Scottish, if he uses this system of the gradual, you know, introduction during the non-peak hours, building, you know, taking a good, you know, five to six days to build a base, he doesn't need to use sunscreen anymore, and he will not burn either. But that knowledge is lost, and people are lying on the beach going, well, I've got sunscreen on, and, and, you know, you can just see there's no way that can be healthy. No native local brown person would sit on a beach under broiling sunlight. They'd be under the palm tree, or they'd be wearing, you know, light, long-skin clothing or some kind of hat during those, you know, really peak hours. Well, speaking of that, I can relate to that because you know the author Rudyard Kipling, and Kipling, one, I don't remember where which of his his works he said this with. Of course, he was talking about uh, in India. He said uh, only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. That's right. Yeah, that was Rudyard Kipling, because you were talking about brown-skinned people. They would see these people from England who were living in India, and they go out in the midday sun and expose themselves. Well. The people who were native to that area had better sense than that. To carry on with this just a step farther, so now that the epidemiological evidence is so clear, because our common sense wasn't clear enough about it apparently, that sunlight's important, they've made, they've medicalized this into, rather than going out in the sun, because that they're going to tell you is going to give you skin cancer, they've they've demonized sunlight, and they say, well, we have to give you a prescription now for vitamin D. In a, in a very toxic amount. Well, sunlight should not be thought of as simply providing vitamin D. And, you know, when I, as you were telling your audience, I recovered from ulcerative colitis and, and rheumatoid arthritis uh, many, many years ago as a young man. And one of the things that played a big role in that was I, I went to a health retreat to work. And uh, this was a place down in Florida, in South Florida, and I saw people there going into solariums and taking sun baths on a routine basis. And I, I, I was coming out of a, a medical background. I had never seen this before in my life, never heard of people taking this as actually a, an element of health. And I saw people just part of, part of them getting well was having regular exposure to the sun. And I require this on all of my patients, particularly those who have autoimmune disorders, to get out in the sun. And we ask them about it, and we we prescribe to them, if you want to use the term, that they've got to get out in the sun for a certain period of time every every day. And when they, they slather themselves, as you were pointing out, when they slather themselves with these creams and lotions, um, they're really two things. First of all, some of those ingredients are, are quite toxic to the body, and they are absorbed into the skin. And secondly, by blocking some of those rays of the sun, they're not going to get the benefit where the sunlight itself is goes into the skin and actually has to be absorbed through kind of oily or sweaty skin. So, uh, And then it turns into 70-hydrocholesterol. And then with the help of the liver and the kidneys, 
it's turned into activated uh, so-called vitamin D, which is really cold calciferol. And the way to do that the best is to go out there, don't burn yourself, but to take, you, know, you start with five minutes on one side of your body, five minutes on the other, and you can gradually build up. You allow yourself to become bronzed, a little brownish, a little tannish. You don't, if you, and you can tell if you've gotten too much, you're going to get red. That means you've gotten too much that day. And you gradually build up a, a tolerance to that. And then another thing that many people don't know is that they should not go and take a shower right afterwards because if they do that, they are going to lose the benefit of the 70-hydrocholesterol. It's going to get washed away. It has to interact. The rays of the sun have to have time to interact with the sweat on our skin in order to give a little time for it to be absorbed into the body so it can be then further converted by the, uh, by the kidneys. So they just give a little time, you know, an hour, and then they can go take a shower and move, move ahead with their lives. And they do it on a regular basis. The only people that really need to be taking uh, so-called vitamin D in a, in a, a capsule or so forth or taking it as a, maybe perhaps as cod liver oil are people that live very far north uh, or are living in weather uh, which doesn't, they don't get much solar exposure in. And those folks may need to take some uh, extra uh, so-called vitamin D. But for the majority of people, that's not necessary. And is there, um, uh, like I hear what you said about gradually building up, but what what is the amount of sun exposure over, let's say, let's say you can't go out nude or, you know, let's say you're in shorts and a T-shirt, how long would you have to be, and let's say you're in, you know, California, so you're not really that close to the equator, how long would you need to be outside in the sun to get an adequate amount of vitamin D or the hormone? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know that I can give you an exact amount, but I can tell you this. You have to keep in mind that our ancestors were out in the sun hours upon hours a day. So as long as the person's not burning, um, I, I, I would say that uh, a minimum probably, and it depends on your climate too, because if you're in a climate such as uh, Ohio or Michigan where you're a little farther north, you're not, not up in the Arctic, but you're in a, in a more northerly climate, you need to spend more time in the sun during the, the warm, sunny months so that you can store up that solar energy so that it can last you through the fall and the rather long winters they have up there and that you have enough to get through with. So I would say, you know, in, in the nice weather, it's spending at least uh, 45 minutes to an hour directly in the sunlight would be uh, at least uh, a minimum I would, I would recommend, with, uh, again, without burning. You don't want to go out there necessarily right at noon uh, nude. And when I say go outside, you can't be out there with your clothes on, uh, covered with a pair of sunglasses and a hat on your head, uh, and not a not a, a an inch of bare skin showing. The best thing is to put on some shorts and a halter for a lady, or a swimsuit, or for a guy, put on a pair of swim trunks, and to get out there, get on a lounge chair on the patio, and you know, cook a little bit on one side, and then flip over like a pancake, and get some exposure on the other side. And it's not a it shouldn't be a chore. It's, it's something that people can actually look forward to. They can they can rest out there. They can relax, and it should be an enjoyable activity. Now, I did not know that the body can store up cholecalciferols to use during the winter months. Oh yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Because when you're when you're getting it from the sun, you're getting the the equivalent, so to speak, of vitamin D, and so therefore it's a it's it's fat soluble. Your body's converting to a fat soluble form, and it can be stored for quite a long time. 
And that's why most people who are living in temperate climates, let's say where, where I'm at in Georgia, they should be able to get plenty of exposure during the warmer months so that when our fall and our winter comes, and we do get a winter down here in Georgia and Atlanta, uh, they're going to get enough uh, to accumulate. They should, they should be able to sail through the, uh, the later fall and the winter right up to the time when the spring comes and they can get back out in the sun again. Now, people up, you know, you're, you're in a, a colder climate or more, well, colder, you're in a more, certainly more rainy climate than we're in. Um, um, you might have to get a little more exposure or perhaps in the late, later, later part of the winter have to take something like a little cod liver oil to get through it. Well, or the other thing that we found living here in the Pacific Northwest where it's just, you know, there can be very little sunlight for, you know, five or six weeks at a time is um, at least once but optimally twice during that wintry period is to go to Mexico and just get as much sun as possible. And so, but I did not know that you could store it. So that really makes sense to me why we have found um, that to be so beneficial to our health during the winter months. Well, that, that's that's an excellent point, and I've recommended that to people who live up north too. Just take a vacation during the uh, colder months, you know, near the, the middle or near the end of it and go down to Arizona or to Florida or somewhere in the Caribbean and just soak up some of that sunlight. And uh, that's hardly a real punishment. It's a little bit inconvenient for some people and maybe a little costly for some folks, but it's well worth the effort uh, because it's so important for our health. And, and people, we didn't evolve in real cold climates. I mean, I don't think God plunked us down there in, the, in northern Alaska. We were, uh, as far as we know, you know, early human life began in Africa, and perhaps it began in South America. It began in tropical climates. And so, uh, again, we really are creatures of the sun. And just turning back to this again, though, I think this is such a good example of, of the medicalization of life's problems where we take people who are suffering from depression, which they do get, and, and lack of sunlight is a leading cause of depression, and they're suffering from things like uh, osteoporosis and osteopenia, osteomalacia, all these problems where the bones are not uh, able to retain their integrity because the person is not receiving adequate sunlight and therefore so, so-called quote-unquote vitamin D. Uh, they're suffering uh, from general weakness. They're suffering from a lack of immunity. And rather than say, you know, you need to get out in the sun, let's get you out in the fresh air and let's get you out in the sunlight, the doctor simply says, okay, I'm going to prescribe a pill for you. And people have such a... Even people who are running to so-called alternative doctors have such a kinship with taking a pill that they are perfect. It's a perfect fit for them for that individual because they're very accepting of it. They're used to taking pills from one doctor, the conventional doctor. So this guy says he's alternative, holistic, conventional, or um, complementary, functional. And so they said, good, I'll take another pill, but this is a natural pill and yet we're missing the boat on this, and it doesn't solve the problem. I don't think people who are going to find that taking a 50,000 unit of international units of vitamin D are going to get anything close to the benefits that they would receive just by getting out in the sunlight. And I don't think they're going to find that their mental depression or their osteoporosis or their osteopenia or their immune problems are going to get better. And this is something, too, this, is, this has been seen in study after study, that people with inflammatory bowel disease and people with rheumatoid arthritis, uh, not only those who get enough sunlight are less less likely to develop it, but that people who have developed these problems, once they start getting that exposure, 
are far more likely to make a recovery. Very interesting. So almost, you know, for someone with IBD, it's kind of a must-have to say you either need to move somewhere where you can get access to more sun or you have to take those regular trips to, um, you know, get your stores back up again. Right. And it, it, it makes perfect sense. And I don't think anybody's going to accuse any doctor of saying, well, you're just trying to make money when all we're telling them is you just need to get out in the sun. Well, your your foundations of health are, are revolutionary. So we've talked about sleep. We've mentioned fresh air. We've talked about sunlight. And another thing that you mentioned is um, having those supportive relationships where there's, you know, intimacy and love and regard. And um, that's something that you'll never hear a doctor even question you about, you know, who's in your life? How is that working for you? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, when I was, uh, again, a young man, I was working at this, uh was called the Hygienic Institute. It was actually called the Shangri-La Natural Hygiene Institute. It's no longer there, but it was there about 25 years. And the um, owner, who was an osteopathic doctor, uh, had taken me under his wing, and I was mentoring under him. And uh, he asked me one day, he said, what do you think? He said, Paul, what do you think is the most common deficiency that people have? I, I didn't really know, and so I said uh, um, vitamin C, which wasn't a great was not a great answer. And he said, no, it's not the greatest deficiency people have. The greatest deficiency that people have is a lack of companionship. And in 40 years of practice, I've seen this over and over and over again. And people come to their office and they're seeking a, a special diet, they're seeking a special supplement, they're seeking a special herb, they're seeking a special therapy. And they're not always going to get that from me because <laughs> I'm going to give them what I think is, I'm going to suggest to them what what I think is at the root of their problem. And for a lot of people, and I, I practiced uh, this morning, I practiced uh, from about 8 o'clock this morning till about 3.30 before I got on the phone with you, is I had a young lady there today, and she's actually a medical student. And uh, she's suffering with a great deal of anxiety, and she's suffering with indigestion, and she's suffering uh, with fatigue, great deal of fatigue, and she cries very, very easily. And she wanted me to run uh, a panel of tests on her, and she's already been to a number of doctors, including alternative practitioners and conventional doctors. And she wanted me to find out, you know, what was going on with her. Well, today was her ROF, her report of findings where myself or Dr. Tenner or both of us will sit down with the patient and we will review with them what we found. And I went through all the, the tests that we had done on her. We tested for functional efficiency, whether she's digesting carbohydrates properly, whether she's digesting proteins properly, what her fatty acid balance was, did she have small intestinal bowel overgrowth, what were the bacteria living in her intestine, what was her high-sensitivity cardiac reactive protein? Uh, what did we think about her diet in terms of her nutrient intake? And uh, you know, a, a number of, of uh, functional tests like that, as well as some standard chemistries and, and blood work. And I went through it. I, I showed her there's, there's some problems you're having here. And she said, uh, so what, what do I need to do? I said, based upon the earlier conversation we had when you first came in, We've got to get you with some people, I said, because these problems are occurring not, be, not because of a dietary lack. These problems are occurring not because you need for me to give you a bunch of pills to take. They're occurring because you're lonely, 
and she she started crying immediately, big old crocodile tears and sobbing. And she's she's only about uh, 28 years old. And I let her cry for a little bit. I I, I moved over a little closer to her, and I you know I said go ahead, and I, I brought out the box of Kleenex for her. And I she said I, I know I think that's what I th- you really think that that's what the problem is. She said that's why I'm having these other problems. I said that's why you're having those other problems. Because the loneliness you're having, the emotional distress that you're having, is not allowing your digestive system to work well. The emotional distress you're having is is causing changes in your cortisol levels. The emotional distress that you're having is not allowing your body to function efficiently. And so, yes, I can find some vitamin deficiencies, mineral deficiencies, blah, 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 all this with you, but that wouldn't be getting to the source of the problem. The source of the problem is that you're not happy and you're not you're not getting what you need in terms of companionship. And I knew that from talking with her before and I that's I just wanted to you know, I tested her to make sure it was nothing pathological and there wasn't. And she she agreed with me. She said that's that's true. So we talked a little bit about how she can can uh take steps uh to alleviate that. So it wasn't what she was eating, it was probably more what she w- was eating her, which in her case was loneliness. Do you think for someone like that, um, let's say she's just on this crazy schedule and she's not willing to give it up and she doesn't have time to have, you know, meaningful social relationships and whatnot, but how about animal, an animal companion? Does that have the same effect or in your experience, does it really need to be a human? Well, you and I have talked, and you know I love animals, and uh, which is why I tend not to eat them very often. Um, and I think that uh, dogs, cats, uh, a pet pig, whatever it might be, can fill, fulfill some of the same requirements that human companionship does. Um, and, and certainly I have recommended to many patients, particularly older patients, but younger ones sometimes too, that they get themselves an animal companion. And there's so many uh, desperate, sweet dogs and cats you can find at all the rescue organizations and at your local dog pound that would be just delighted to go home with you and give you all the love that they can. And uh, they they can you can heal them and they can heal they can heal us. I think it's even better if people can get get it from both sources get uh, get human companionship and non-human companionship because I think they both complement each other very nicely. But for somebody who doesn't have either, yeah, I think they're going to go a long ways by getting themselves uh, a loving dog or a loving horse or cat or whatever the animal might be. I don't know about a fish, but uh, uh, any type of mammalian life usually works can work pretty well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, having had a wide variety of animals, I would definitely say that dogs and horses are the top ones for giving the feeling, the same kind of companionship feeling that you can get from a good friend. Yeah, I, I, I would I would agree with that. Uh, um, some people do find cats. I, I don't. I have a cat. I love my cat, but uh, I don't find it's the same level of companionship as my dog provides for me. But but you know, cats are great too. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I have three cats as well. And I have to say that the Maine Coon cat is way more like a dog than the other cats. And it yeah, would are. actually, if you want to get a cat, but you want that, you definitely get a Maine Coon because they're they're like in between the two species, I think. So uh-huh. very, very much companions. Um, I, I think to you're right on target, though, target, though, because what happens a lot 
is that people will go in and they'll complain of various physical problems to the doctor, whether, again, it's a conventional alternative. And, again, I don't draw a big distinction, a huge distinction between the two necessarily. And they'll complain about various, their stomach hurts, they're fatigued. And uh, you can run tests, and you can often find markers that they may be inflamed, they may not have good digestion, um, and you, so you can find problems going on with them. But just because somebody is deficient in a, in, in a group of vitamins or minerals doesn't mean that giving them vitamins and minerals is going to solve the problem. And people say, well, how can that be? If they're deficient, that is the problem. Well, but if they're deficient in something, the problem may be because, that their digestion is poor, and that's why they're not absorbing the food that they take in. If their digestion is poor, it may be because they're having emotional stress, and again, they're not absorbing the food that they're taking in. Or in some people, um, they're having deficiencies because of excess. And we don't really have a society which is so much deficient in, in their intake in terms of their diets, although that does happen. We have a, a society which is a lot more deficient because people eat too much. They eat too much of the wrong things, and they impair their digestion. Their digestion gets inefficient and they develop themselves, they develop problems. We, we, we don't have diseases so much of deficiency as we have diseases of excess in this country. And uh, so, again, you have to look and see. The person might have vitamin and mineral deficiencies, might have amino acids that are out of whack, and we test for those things. But that doesn't mean that the, the solution for that is necessary to give them a, a cascade of supplements. And that young lady I just mentioned to you, the medical student, she was taking a, 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 a bag full of supplements, and I have had patients come to my office, and they're, they're take well, this week we have one lady come in. She takes 85 different supplements. I don't know where oh she has room gosh. to put, put any food. I, I, I have to send you some pictures of this, Jenny, because we, we took one of our examination tables, and we put all the bottles of stuff she's taking on there. It filled up the whole table. And her poor husband, because she, she, she is spending in excess of $4,000 a month on taking supplements, and she's also taking and she's taking drugs as well. And their bills are over four thousand dollars a month on that. And uh, is she deficient? Yeah, she's probably deficient in a bunch of stuff. But the part of the problem is her body's so imbalanced, and part of the imbalance is because of all these pills that she's taking. That's not to say that supplements can't be helpful. We use them in practice. You talk about them wisely in, in the great books that you've written. But they have to be used in a constructive manner, and they should never be used as an excuse or a substitute for finding out what is really wrong with the person to start with. And once we find out what's wrong, then we can use them in a rational way uh, to help the person recover. But not we, we don't want to let the patient think, well, your problem is you just need these, these supplements, and you take these and your problems are over, unless you're, getting, you're working with somebody maybe who's from uh, – you know, uh, Ethiopia or Biafra, who really has, you know, marasmus or quashiorcor, and then the person's going to need, you know, they're going to need amino acids and they're going to need protein. But we don't see that that frequently in the United States. Yeah, it's, you know, in my books I, I write about, yeah, you need often to take um, a fair number of supplements for a period of time. But the point is to, as you said, get to the root of what's going on effect healing at the root level and while you're simultaneously maybe buying yourself some symptom relief or um, you know helping the body correct the deficiency faster and then once you attain that state of balance to not keep taking handfuls of supplements 
you know, every single day and saying, well, this is ensuring my health and this is, you know, this is what I need because I tend towards this. It's like, no, then there's still an underlying problem um, that you haven't dealt with and you haven't resolved. So uh, one thing you brought up, though, um, just a little while ago, uh, for the dietary thing, I want you to talk about, um, in light of the, the whole drive behind the paleo diet, I want you to talk about protein excess and catabolism because until I talked to you, I didn't know all of this stuff and I didn't even know that you could test for that and I didn't know what the process was. I mean, you, you told me a story about, um, I believe he was a bodybuilder that came to see you. Could you share yeah. that with us? Yeah, I'll be glad to. Uh, by the way, and I'm going to go into that right away, uh, Junior, I just want to mention to your audience, there's a great book. It was written by a, a Ph.D. in biochemistry who was taught at Yale University. Uh name is Colin Campbell, and he wrote a book called The China Study that's been out for a while. And I, I require my upper quarter students at the chiropractic college I teach at uh, to read that book. And he talks about the problems with protein excess and how that has contributed among other things, to a great deal of, of uh, tendency for people to get cancer in this country. Um, as, as I said, I don't think most people in this country suffer from a whole lot of deficiencies as a result of intake deficiency, although it, it does occur. More so, they suffer with problems of excess. And so if you're eating a diet which where you're eating like kings and queens, then, uh, as John McDougall used to say, then you develop the same diseases as kings and queens have which used to be gout and arthritis and rheumatism and cancer and heart disease and obesity. And all you got to do is go to your local Walmart and just watch the people that are shopping there, and you can pretty quickly see that we're a country which suffers not with deficiency but with excess. And then if you watch the people as they're, as they're checking out of Walmart or any grocery store for that matter, and you look at the things that they're buying, they've got excess fat, they've got excess carbohydrate, They've got excess sugar, all the stuff with corn syrup in it, for example. And they've got excess protein. That's the other thing they have. So for years, there have been dietary programs that have involved uh, eating what I would regard as considerably, considerable amounts of excess protein. One of the ones that some of your listeners uh, might recall was the so-called Atkins program or the Atkins diet which involved eating tremendous amounts of protein and fat to the exclusion of a lot of not eating very much carbohydrate. Uh, and you could pretty much eat fat and, and protein to your heart's delight, including eating bacon and pork chops and things. And, and people love that because that's what they want to do anyway. And there's a, there's, a diet, there's a gustatory reward for them when they do that. So uh, then they would go into ketosis and they would lose weight. Because as your body lacks sufficient carbohydrate in the diet, uh, the body will start uh, breaking down uh, protein and fat as a source of energy because it's got to have something to fuel itself with because the nervous system operates on what? It operates on, on glucose. All your nervous system operates on glucose. So if you're not taking in this carbohydrate, which can be easily converted, you know, healthy forms of carbohydrate and vegetables and, and things like yams and sweet potatoes and potatoes and brown rice and things like that, then the body has to say, where else are we going to get it? Well, the person's only taking in protein and fat on these diets, and so it has to use that, convert it into ketone bodies, and use the ketone bodies as energy. Problem. When it does that, we're going to get the buildup of these ketone bodies in the blood, and those ketone bodies are acidic. 
they're acid forming. And so the pH of the blood will start to shift only very slightly. And immediately when it does that, the body will start taking potassium from the interior of our cells and putting it into the bloodstream to neutralize the excess acidity because the body will not allow the pH of, the, of your bloodstream to shift very much. If it does, you can die because <laughs> you can't transmit nerve impulses, you can't get muscle contraction, all kinds of things start being thrown out if, you, if your pH of your blood shifts very much. So the body starts pulling things like calcium from the bone and puts it into your bloodstream. So now you get osteoporosis. Is that common in our country? Yeah, real common. And it starts taking potassium from inside the cells and because it's, that's an alkaline mineral, and it puts it into the bloodstream, and so we alkalize the blood a little bit more, and so the body gets, uh, is able to keep the, the pH at a reasonable level. Problem, though, you do this for a long period of time, those ketone bodies build up, and after a while, your bones start getting thin, and now we're subject to osteoporosis and hip fracture, spinal fracture, and you start losing potassium in the interior of the cell, and now you're going to have trouble with the muscles contracting. And that can lead to heart attack. Do we have a lot of heart attack in the United States? Yep, got a whole lot of that. And that's the danger of these high-protein diets, not only the Atkins diet, but the way a lot of people interpret the so-called paleolithic or caveman diet uh, to live. They're taking in an excess of protein, insufficient carbohydrate. They're going to demineralize the body that way by, because the body will use reserve potassium, reserve calcium as two examples, to neutralize the excessivity in the blood, and that it will interfere not only with the formation of healthy bone, but it will also interfere with muscle contraction. And where we got one really important muscle that contracts, and that's the heart. So let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Um, and let's talk about what's wrong or what are the problems with veganism. Well, you're going to two, you're going to two, you're going to two extremes here, and we, we I, I should be quick to add to this that getting adequate protein in the diet is of great importance. In fact, the word protein means of primary importance. So there's nothing wrong. In fact, there's everything right with getting adequate protein, whether you're getting it from a vegetable source or you're getting it from an animal source. We need to get adequate protein. This is a problem going to extremes. And actually, some of the people who started writing about paleo, the Paleolithic lifestyle and so forth had a lot on the ball in looking at the way our ancestors used to live. But it's been distorted. And if you look at some of the early writers who wrote about Paleolithic uh, lifestyle, and in fact, there was, there was a couple guys at, at uh, Emory University uh, down here in Atlanta that wrote were some of the earlier proponents of that, uh, what they wrote was pretty reasonable, and they weren't urging people to go out and just, just eat uh, you know, steak and pork chops all day. So if we look at the other end of the scale, um, you, know, and you, can be, uh, you can be a healthy vegan, but there, there are problems with that. There can be problems with that, too, that people have to be cautious about. And just so your, your listeners know, to be vegan means that a person would avoid any type of animal product whatsoever. They would avoid all animal flesh. They would avoid all dairy products. They would avoid eggs. And because of the usually a vegan uh, person who is engaging in a vegan diet is also doing this because out of kindness to animals, they would usually not want to not use things like um, leather products um, because that comes from animal skins. 
Well, you can be a healthy vegan, but there are some cautionaries that people need to take. And um, you have to make sure that, you number one, you get adequate protein. That actually is not that hard to do on a vegan diet. But where they sometimes will fall short is with the essential fatty acids, particularly things like EPA and DHA, which they can get, but they have to be more careful about it. They, they have to be careful to make sure they get enough uh, B12. And so if they, uh, if they look at those things pretty carefully, they should be all right. But I would say anybody who's going on a vegan diet should have that uh, looked at by somebody who's got some background in, in, in dietetics and nutrition if they're going to do it safely. Because some people, again, go too far in extreme, and some of the vegans I've seen in practice end up eating not hardly anything but fruit. And that's fine to do for a day or two, but not, not for a lifestyle forever. And so they end up and oftentimes getting depleted. Or they may end up eating a very rich uh, carbohydrate diet and really kind of get carbohydrate intoxication and not get adequate protein in the diet. So if they're going to be a strict vegan, and we could all probably you know, lean a little bit in that direction, but if they're going to be a strict vegan, then they need to make sure they know what they're doing. And I remember one time we were talking about this. Now, were you a vegan or a vegetarian for quite a long period of time? I've, I've done both at different times. And, um, and, again, when people talk about being a vegetarian or being a vegan or being a meat-eater, and I have to answer these questions all the time, not just for patients but also for students in the classes I teach, it doesn't really define exactly what we do. And I would say that you can be healthy and be a vegan. You can be healthy and be a vegetarian. You can be healthy and you can eat some animal proteins too. Um, but the, the thing to do is to make sure that you're doing this in a rational way and not going too far to any single extreme. For myself, I find I don't need very much animal protein at all. I could buy with very, very little. I don't eat any animal, any, any animal flesh at all. But I do occasionally... We'll have I have a, a patient that brings me some of the best um, organic eggs you can possibly imagine, and I visited their little farm, and the, all the chickens are like pets to them. They don't kill any of them, and they have when the when the chicken gives birth to a rooster, they keep the roosters. So I feel very good about it, and the eggs are absolutely delicious. The yolks are this kind of a dark orange color, and so I get I get protein from that. And then I also have a friend who has a little goat dairy farm, and I'm able to get some raw milk cheese from them. And they're they're very careful. I've visited, I've seen it, and they're very careful about the way they take care of their animals. And the and the male goats they tend to keep also. They either keep them or they give them away as to people who keep them from companions or pets. So, in in a world which is not perfect, um, I think that I you know that's that's what I feel comfortable with in doing. And I, I feel very good with that. When I was strictly vegan, I, I did okay, and I did that for several years. But I found I just didn't have quite as much spark as when I eat a couple eggs or a couple ounces of uh, raw milk cheese on a weekly basis. It doesn't take much. You know, you can get enough, you can get enough uh, B12 out of a couple eggs to last you for a long time because we measure B12 in micrograms. So it just takes a very small amount. I have a good friend whose name is John Fielder. He's a, uh, a physician in Australia. He's in his not well. I see he's about 83 now, and John's the same way. He was a vegan for a long time. Didn't quite give him the vitality he wanted, and so he takes uh, about two or three ounces of uh, goat milk or even cow's milk yogurt once a week or once every other week. That's all, and for his purposes, that's all he needs. 
But I will want to add this. Everybody's different. No two people are the same. We all have this thing we call biochemical individuality. We also have different lifestyles, and we also have different times of our life where our needs differ. And so there's no dietary that's going to be absolutely ideal for everybody. There are certain parameters which everybody should pretty much stay in, but within those parameters, some people need more protein, some people need more carbohydrate, some people need more fat or less fat. And so, you know, like you, like the name of your, your organization, your, your company, listen to your gut. Well, people have to listen to their needs uh, the same way um, as to what they need. So certain parameters and then finding out what the person needs for, for themselves. Either Some people do it on their own. Some people need professional help for that. And the other thing that goes with that is people's digestive efficiency differs from person to person, too, not only because of things they've done to impair it, but also because we are born with different capabilities. Some people are better protein digesters. Some people have limitations in terms of just the way they're built and how much fat they're able to digest, and some people handle carbohydrate better than others. So those particular, what Roger Williams called biochemical individualities, need to be uh, sorted out for each person. Yes, and I find they're not um, you know, race or ethnicity specific because even within my three children, I purposely raised them in a way that encouraged them to place their hand on their belly and ask their belly what they wanted. So they weren't checking in with their taste buds or their <laughs> mind about, oh, that's what tastes really good, but they were actually asking their gut. And then I just watched, I observed, and among my three children, hugely different requirements for um, good fats, protein levels, the amount of um, carbohydrates or fruit or vegetables that they their bodies naturally um, go to. And then for myself, my requirements have, again, huge fluctuations when pregnant or breastfeeding and then after age 40. You know, after age 40, I'm like, you know what, you don't even need to eat three times a day, like twice a day is actually plenty to provide a ton of vitality, lots of energy, um, you know, and not as much food as before. So even just staying in tune to, you know, and for most of us, if you're, you know, sitting at a desk for eight hours a day, you know, I think we hugely overestimate our energy requirements. Like we're sedentary. We don't do anything. We're not out working on a farm. Like now that, you know, I've had horses for the last few years, and I'll do a minimum of two hours of physical labor a day, sometimes up to four or five if I'm building a fence or whatever. And even with that amount of physical labor, I don't eat as much as people who work an office job. And they, you know, because I think we're back into this thing of excess and we're back into that the system actually becomes sluggish and it's not able to digest, it's not able to extract the nutrients. And, you know, they're probably also not getting enough sleep, not enough fresh air, not enough sunlight. And, you know, it just kind of comes together into this synergistic um, ill health state that the person accepts as their norm. I agree with you 100%. And uh, you already know this. I want to share with your audience one of the secrets for my success in helping people get well. And here it is. You can, they can look at my, if they look at my website at goldbergclinic.com, they're going to see videos there. I'm interviewing, or Dr. Tenner is interviewing patients who recovered from all kinds of nasty diseases, rheumatoid arthritis and colitis and Crohn's disease, uh, multiple sclerosis, the whole bit. But here is something that I can't see for all 70 of them or 100. I don't know what we got on there now. We have a lot of videos. 
but one of the, the so-called secrets, which I don't really keep secret, for helping the majority, not everybody, but the majority of patients get well, is not having them eat more. It's not giving them more vitamins and minerals. It's cutting down on their intake. And you're absolutely right. Most people don't need to be eating three times a day. Well, we, and one of the problems we have in practice is people coming in with, they've got ulcerative colitis, they've got Crohn's disease, they've got irritable bowel syndrome, and they've got, you know, one of 140 different autoimmune disorders. And they're eating, 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 in addition to, you know, tons of supplements that they're taking. And they're wondering why they're so malnourished. Well, they are also pleasantly surprised to find that when we start having them eat less, eat less, their energy levels start to go up. We don't get energy from food directly. Food is just used as a substrate out of which the body uses as a material in order to construct energy. If food, just, if, if food alone gave us energy, we could just take a cadaver and fill it full of food and it would jump up and down and it would start going to life. And, of course, that doesn't happen. Most people will find that by eating less, they will have more energy, you know, unless you have some problem like anorexia nervosa. Uh, but uh, most people find that if they, if they eat less, they'll actually have more energy than what they had before. And uh, it was Benjamin Franklin that said, uh, "We live on one third, or two, two, we live on two thirds of what we eat, and the doctor lives on the other third." That's true. That's awesome. If you look at the, the reasons that they found out why people live to be a hundred years of age and older, the so-called centurions, the people who have lived a hundred years of age and older, there's really only one factor nutritionally that's been identified. Just one. There's some other things that may have some basis to them, but this is the only thing that really epidemiologically has been actually proven over and over and over again. Every time they look at all these people living a hundred years of age and older is that they all eat very little. That's the only thing they all have in common. I mean, some of these people were smokers. Some of these people were drinkers. I'm not, I'm not advocating anybody smoke and drink, by the way. But the one thing they had in common was they all ate very little. It's almost counterintuitive for us in our culture. It is. <laughs> but if you give yourself permission to actually listen to your gut and ask your belly what do you want? Do we need that? When do we need to eat? And and to to list to follow your, the trail of your own vitality, I think people will be astounded at how little food they do eat. And when you do eat, to be really conscious, to be mindful, to chew each mouthful until it's liquid mush, and to thoroughly enjoy it, and then you know swallow, and then and then get your next mouthful ready. Don't have it lined up on your fork like planes coming into land, and all these things that make us just woof it down and, and, you know, it takes 30 minutes for the stomach to signal that it's actually full. Well, most people are done eating in 10 or 15 minutes, so how's that going to work for yeah. you being able to listen to your own body and for it to signal you as to how much food you actually do need? I, I think anybody who does clinical nutrition as part of their practice, as we do, needs to, in, in some cases, de-emphasize the um, almost obsession that we find with some people for looking at every bite that they eat in terms of its caloric intake and its how much vitamin A and how much vitamin C and am I getting enough protein and getting enough fat because again that's only one aspect not only of a person's health it's really only one aspect of their, nutri their nutrition and the things that you just mentioned are so important that we we eat when we're calm and that we chew our food well and I spend a lot of my time with a lot of patients trying to actually draw their attention away from dietary factors. 
Uh, once I establish what they're supposed to eat, and we usually go through phases with them, and one of the first things we normally do with a lot of patients is have them eat less. Some of our patients will fast, some will go on a liquid diet as a first phase just to rest them a little bit and to allow some of the old cells to start breaking down before we replenish them. And uh, I spend a lot of time with patients drawing some of their attention away from food and not so much what they're eating but other important factors that, that nurture us because food is not the only thing that nurtures us. And just going back in our conversation today, we've talked about the importance of having companionship and we've talked about the importance of sunlight. We've talked about uh, animals as companions, too, and all these things, and sleep and rest. All these things are equally important, and they all have to be looked at in a balanced way. Let's talk about um, the massive trend for thyroid hormone replacement therapy, um, whether it's Synthroid or a bioidentical or an herbal. Let's talk about that and, and tell me what you think about that and what you're not happy with. Oh, I'm not happy with a lot of that, and that's that's a big bugaboo I have. All right, so when I first got into practice 40 years ago, I used to see women occasionally on some type of thyroid replacement. Now, when a lady walks in my office, and the typical f- patient I have is, is a female somewhere between 35 and 65. And I see them younger, I see them older, but that's more the typical one. And um, it, it's... it's um, Almost, it's not a given, but it's almost a given that they're going to be on thyroid medication. I would say probably a third, some days maybe as much as a half of the new patients that we see are already on some type of hormone thyroid hormone replacement, usually Synthroid. So here's the scenario. The, the lady has felt tired. The lady has felt depressed. She hasn't felt energetic. Her sexual vitality is low. She's just kind of low-key all the way around, and she goes to her general practitioner, to her family doctor, uh, or to her integrative, holistic, functional medical doctor, and she says, I'm really tired all the time, I'm depressed, um, I don't have any energy for my husband emotionally or physically. And he says, okay, he or she says, okay, uh, let's do some blood work on you. So he does typically a, a blood chemistry, good idea. He does a blood count, good idea. And he or she is going to do uh, a thyroid panel, okay? Nothing wrong with running those tests, certainly. He may do some other tests, of course, too, depending on what else he hears from the patient. The thyroid test comes back, and he's looking. Hopefully they've done a complete panel. They've done uh, TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone. They've done uh, T3, and they've done T4. And they find that the T4, which is thyroxin, that's the activated, that's the active portion of, thyro- of the, the, what the thyroid secretes, is, is low. Okay, so with a knee-jerk reaction, he tells the lady, he says, he or she says, um, your thyroxin level is low, your TSH level, which is thyroid-stimulating hormone, is high, and that means your, your body's trying to produce more and it's not able to do it. So, therefore, knee-jerk reaction, we're going to give you a thyroid hormone. And they're going to either prescribe Synthroid, which is a synthetic thyroxin, or they're going to prescribe maybe if they're quote-unquote holistic alternative complementary functional. <laughs> they're going to prescribe uh, Nutrithroid, or they're going to prescribe Armor Thyroid. And to me, it doesn't make a bit of difference. It's all the same. It's basically the same stuff. 
And patients say, well, mine's a natural thyroid. You know, it's armor thyroid. It's taken from pig thyroid. It doesn't make any difference. The reason they're giving it to you is because it has active thyroid hormone. It has T4 in it. Okay, so she takes it. The patient takes it. And she's supposed to come back to the doctor in a couple weeks or so, and she comes back and she says, I've started it, and I do feel a little better. And he says, good. All right, now you're going to check with with me every six months or every year, as the case may be, and we'll adjust it as necessary. So she never really feels great. She only feels slightly better. It doesn't feel great. It doesn't have really abundant vitality. It doesn't have a big smile on her face now. She's not able to go out and play tennis like she used to do. She's not uh, uh, doing great in bed with her husband, but she's a little better. She's a little better. So she goes back in, in three months or six months. She goes to her medical doctor. They check her thyroid levels again. They say, okay, we need to up that dose. So she says, okay. And he says, you know, you're putting on a little weight, so we're off the dose a couple notches here on you, and maybe it'll help you lose a little weight. So they do that. The scenario is that every, not necessarily every time, but as time goes on, she's going to find that she's going to need more and more thyroxin, more and more drug, in order to obtain the same result. Plus, over time, whatever small benefit she got starts to dissipate, and she ends up getting more fatigued, and she starts putting on more weight. And what the physician, whether he be conventional or alternative, hasn't told her is that by taking that thyroid replacement hormone, her own hormone production has been shut off. That's called replacement therapy. It's the same thing when people take things like prednisone. They don't realize that when they take prednisone up over anything above about 5 milligrams, their own steroidal production begins to shut down and that adrenal gland starts to atrophy. Well, in this case, the thyroid gland starts to atrophy. Why? Because it doesn't have any work to do anymore. You're taking replacement therapy. And so it starts shutting down. They never t- I, I, I don't, can't tell you, I don't think one in a hundred of the patients I've seen, their doctor even tells them this. Maybe some of the doctors don't realize it themselves. I don't know. But it's true. I, I think they don't. I think the doctors themselves don't know. I mean, I have done teleseminars with hormone specialists going in-depth into all of this, and nobody has ever said that even the natural armor thyroid will um, shut down your own thyroid gland and it will atrophy and cease functioning. Yeah, and, and it will. As soon as you exceed the normal production of your own gland, quite logically, quite rationally, your own gland starts to shut down. And now, because of that replacement therapy, you actually will lose the function of it. So if a lady, and it could be a man, because occasionally this happens with men too, if she comes in and she's been on it for over a year, I am not as optimistic about ever getting back the function of that gland. We might. We, sometimes we do. I had one lady that was on it for seven years where we got her gland restored, but that was the exception. That was not the rule. I certainly wouldn't promise anybody, you know, if you've been on this for three, four, five, six, seven years, we're going to get the function back. Um, and I, I've had many women, however, who have been on it for a year, sometimes two years, where we've been able to restore the function of it. Now, here's the scenario as I think it should have played out in the first place, and this is the way I look at it. If that same woman or man comes in to see me and they're complaining about fatigue, Dr. Goldberg, I'm tired. Dr. Goldberg, I have no vitality to play sports, to consort with my husband, to play with my kids. I'd say, okay, let's find out why. Now, I have no problems in doing a thyroid panel. I do it on a lot of patients. 
And if I find the thyroid gland low that's not producing T4 in sufficient amounts, if we find the TSH is high, which means that the pituitary is sending signals to the thyroid gland that needs to produce more, then I'm going to, to sit down with the patient and say, now look, your thyroid gland is struggling here. We need to find out why that's happening. And the reasons why that may be happening are diverse. And going back to what are the essentials of health? Is the lady getting enough sleep? Does she have a proper dietary where she's providing the thyroid gland with the nutrients it needs? What are some of the things it needs, for example? Well, it needs things like phenylalanine. And it needs things like tyrosine. These are amino acids that are necessary to support the production of uh, thyroxine. It needs iodine in order to produce thyroxine. So either she may not be getting those nutrients or she's taking them in the diet, but they're not being absorbed properly and she's not getting them to where they're needed. Or she may be under such high demands from stress, maybe she's going through a divorce, maybe she's got an IRS audit, maybe she's unhappy with a friend of hers who's put her through some type of trauma, maybe she's got a bad neighbor, maybe she has bad sleep habits. And the stress, whatever these things are, either individually or in combination, are leading to her extra demands on her body such that she is no longer able to produce adequate thyroxine. So what do we do? Does she have low thyroxine? Yes. Do we want to give her thyroxine? No. We want to get her body producing it on its own. And then we're going to put her on a program addressing whatever we found in the interview, in the exam, and in the lab work that was lacking or in excess to bring her back into balance. And then once we've provided the right conditions, and that's a a word I use a lot, Jenny, the right conditions, then the body will start kicking back in and we'll start producing that thyroxine on its own. And in 98% of the time, that's exactly what will happen. The body, you give it three months or so, it starts kicking in and you check those thyroxine levels and they're right back to where it should be. And just like I used that example, the lady that came in was fatigued and she was staying up late, I guarantee you, you take any individual and you let them, you, you deprive them of sleep and you will definitively see thyroxine levels drop. I could I could virtually guarantee you that. And so those are just some simple things. We have to scan the patient, lifestyle analysis, biochemical analysis. Why isn't the gland producing enough? Not, it's not producing enough, so let's supply it. It's, it's a very interesting perspective for the entire hormone replacement paradigm because, you know, after age 35 and we've got the perimenopause and all that stuff happening and then, Um, You know, people who are healing from chronic illness, especially if they've been on, you know, any of the prescription meds, you can almost guarantee that their their hormones are unbalanced, imbalanced. And so, you know, what I've traditionally gone to is saying, okay, same way that I use supplements, let's use the natural bioidentical hormones to bring you back into balance for a very short period of time, and then your body can take over. Um, and that's worked well for me, but now that, you know, giving me this perspective, I think the reason it's worked well for me is that I've never relied on it. It's always been that short-term um, helping hand. Meanwhile, I'm addressing those foundational health requirements of sleep, of sunlight, of saying, you know, often, you know, healing from any chronic illness, I talk a lot about the need to get into the emotional roots of dis-ease in the body and so 
you know, along with the relationship and the companionship, you have to address your um, any woundings or traumas that are held actually in the tissues and the cells of the body. You have to, um, you know, go into what dynamics are at work in your life that are foundationally unhealthy, and you have to say, well, do I need to shift this relationship? Do I need to leave this relationship? Okay, if I'm not ready to do that, what can I do to start healing um, you know, my emotional self that is drawn to someone like this, for example. So that whole thing is a crucial part of achieving health. But now I wonder, you know, the reason I've had such good results from hormone therapy, and I've used it very sparingly and for very short periods of time, I'm now thinking is because I was simultaneously going to the root causes. And then as soon as I, you know, felt, okay, I don't need that, weaning myself off it, and I didn't have a any trouble or any long-term consequences of using, you know, the natural or bioidentical hormone therapy? My guess is, uh, Jenny, that if you had, with all that you know about health, which is quite, you know, it's quite extensive, and with your ability to make these discernments about yourself and, and help others, that if you had not taken those hormones initially and just done everything else that you did, you would have found that you would have recovered just as nicely, maybe even quicker. I do just a little bit differently than your approach is that I will first try to bring those hormone levels up to normal by creating the right conditions for their manu- being manufactured by the body. Then and only then, if I can't do that, and it's pretty rare for that to happen, would I recommend somebody to take hormone replacement. That would be my last course of action, not my first. And I will admit, uh, back in the 80s, I did uh, suggest hormone replacement for some women, and as, as along with the other things that we were doing, and I did that initially. But I, as this became more popular by all these complementary, holistic, alternative, integrative doctors, particularly those who have MDs and DOs after their name, I just have seen so many complications, including increasing women's uh, risk of estrogen-dependent cancers by the use of these hormone therapies, in addition to the fact that I think it distracts people from actually looking what the causes of their problems are. So if I'm, and there's, there are some exceptions to the rule. Like I, I had a, a young woman that come in, came in, and, and she was only in her 30s, and she had the, um, the genetics, the so-called BRCA2 gene uh, for, uh, for cancer, and her mother had had breast cancer, and so she elected, like, um, um, oh, gee, who is the um, Brad Pitt's wife or ex-wife? I don't know whatever the status is. Um, yeah, Angelina Jolie. Thank you. Thank you. This lady went ahead. This patient of mine had gone ahead, had had a double mastectomy, and she had removal of her female organs. That's not something I would have recommended to her. But having seen her only after she had that done, and I said, yes, it would be appropriate for you at 30 years old to be taking hormone replacement therapy. But that's, you know, those kind of extreme examples are about the only ones that I feel that, that women should do that. I don't feel it's, it's a good idea to take it just because a woman has reached 45 or 50 years old and her normal hormone supply is going down to think that this is some type of fountain of youth and that by taking these hormones, it's going to bring back her so she can uh, feel like she's 20 again. If she hasn't taken good care of her health like that, just by simply doing the right thing, she may find that she starts feeling like she's 20 or 25 again. 
and um, but she's not going to get that type of surge by taking hormones, which indeed oftentimes complicate her health picture, and in my experience, oftentimes lay the groundwork for increasing the chances that she will develop an estrogen-dependent cancer, meaning cancer of the breast, the ovaries, the uterus, the cervix, or the vagina. And uh, that's a, a risk I really don't think any woman wants to take. You know, it's a it's an interesting thing that you point out, and now that I'm thinking about it, I mean, the times in my life where my hormones have gone considerably out of balance were following extended breastfeeding, which means sleep deprivation. And then for the two cases where they both went out, I was not, the, the with my first child, I was in a sunny climate during his infancy. I was in Singapore, and I got a lot of sun every day, and I was amazed because I actually got the least sleep with him, but my hormones stayed in the best shape, and I had the most energy, and I, I really felt, wow, this is due to the sunlight, not understanding the whole picture about why sunlight is so crucial, you know, until speaking with you. Um, but my other two, I was in the Pacific Northwest with this rainy climate and sleep-deprived from, you know, night feeding. Uh, and you're right, if I had just went, you know, and then you're into that thing of, okay, well, my my child needs to breastfeed for another six months, so I'm going to take some natural progesterone cream on the soles of my feet. I'm going to take a half of the recommended dose. And, wow, that makes a huge difference. You know, and, and at the time that I go, I can't address this sleep. I can't get any more sleep than I'm getting unless I deny my child and I'm not willing to do that. So this is my conscious choice, um, you know, for something like that. But, you know, at the same time, I think if I'd had this bigger picture on the implications and that they do cause the glands to atrophy because, again, that was never mentioned. And I have two books in on hormones in depth. The books are all about hormones, not mentioned in either of those books either. So I think knowing that, I would have looked for different solutions, you know, like um, pumping breast milk and having sure, someone else sure. take one of the, the interim feeds or something like that. Yeah. And I think, again, this goes back to this whole medicalization of our lives. You know, medicine is not the study of life, let alone anybody's specific life. Medicine, whether it be conventional or alternative medicine, is a form of treatment. And I think to foster uh, really good health, we have to understand not how to treat disease, but how to foster normal biological function, how to create the right condition, conditions, the factors that generate a strong defense against the genesis of disease, including chronic disease, and not simply the, the application of various treatments. And I just see this medicalization of life in so many aspects of the way that people live now. We talked about today, we talked, we covered a lot of territory. We talked about sunlight being reduced down to vitamin D and people's fatigue being down, you know, reduced down to taking a hormone pill, uh, people's depression being reduced down to you know, taking some type of anti-anxiety drug, and people's uh, kids who are misbehaving in the classroom, uh, you know, rather than looking at all the factors that support good health for those kids and getting them off junk food and getting them out in sunlight and getting them off their computers and their video games, you know, again, giving them a, uh, giving them a diagnosis of ADHD and then setting them on, on some type of uh, pharmaceutical medication. And as we do this, you know, we're, we're defining more and more of life's uh, problems and life's sometimes normal hardships. We're defining them as, as medical problems. And so we take this complex 
thing we call life, which is all about uh, you know living and and bonding and having sorrows and having joys, and we're reducing this really complex thing we call life to taking pills and potions. And when it doesn't go as we hoped, then we realize that we we've erred in the wrong way. And if we don't start looking at our lives carefully and examining them, and, and you you do a lot of that in your books about you tell people to examine their lives, to listen to their guts, to see what's going wrong with them. And you talk a lot about dietary factors and supplements, but it's just surrounded by so much information about people examining their lives in full. And if we if we don't do that, we're obliterating the opportunity to understand really the the intelligence that directs us and our bodies and, and how to foster it to our benefit. I think an interesting thing, though, you know, I bet you get a fair, or maybe you have a screening process that gets rid of these people, but I would think you would get a fair number of people who would come, and like you said, you've got a woman who's taking 85 supplements. That's what they're going to the doctor for, right? They're going, uh, fix this, give me the herb, the supplement, the pill that will make this go away, and you're saying, well, I need you to go to bed at 9.30. And that person going, you're crazy. What I came here for, like, health, for, you know, doctoring, and you're telling me to get more, oh, you know, boy, you are a waste of time. Do you get, I, I, do you get people reacting that way? Yeah. And I, I'm chuckling here, but it's it's kind of a chuckle that brings tears to my eyes, too, because I think 90% of the people I see, maybe 95%, are very happy with our services. But I, I get 5 to 10% of the people that are unhappy. And when they're unhappy, it's it, it's not after we've worked with them. It's usually right before, right after we've maybe done a workup and we we just start making recommendations to them. At that point, they're unhappy because we're touching on areas that they don't really want to get into. We're, 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 we're telling them things they nece- don't necessarily want to hear but are important for them to hear in order to get well. And we're not giving them just a, a, a diet, although we give people diets. We, you know, we're, I'm, I'm trained in that. I've been a professor of clinical nutrition for 35 years. But uh, I'm looking at all the factors that go into their health, and they're not always hearing from me what they want to hear. But it's uh, 90%, 95% are, are glad to hear it because they want to get well. But for the other ones, they can get very, very unhappy, very, very angry at me. And, and um, I'm always sad about that. I want everybody to come to our clinic to be happy. But on the other hand, I have to give them the advice. I have to give them a plan of action. I have to help them create the conditions that are going to get them well not just give them or tell them what they want to hear. Well, I have a little story for you because I had some feedback from one of my readers that I referred to you, and I heard from her later. She emailed me and said, by the way, um, I was not happy with Dr. Goldberg. He ran all these tests and all this and all that and then didn't really give me anything useful or helpful. And I was like, that's really strange. And then I get another email from her um, and in the meanwhile, so she's decided that you don't have the goods and it was, it was a waste of time. She's gone to another clinic in Europe, which is an inpatient facility. So you, you live in residence, and guess what they do? They address the foundations of health. They cook all your meals for you. You, it's lights out. You know, you have to go to sleep at a, you get your fresh air, you get your sunlight. She was raving about how magnificent this clinic was and how it did restored her to health in a way that no one has ever been able to and she's discovered the secret to life and I, I was, you know, like you said, it's sad but at the same time it's funny because it's like, well, when Dr. Goldberg and Dr. Tenner told you this is what you needed to do, 
you said, well, they were useless. They just ran a whole bunch of tests and didn't help me because at that point, that information had no validity or value. It had carried no weight with you. You just were like, what? Sleep? What? I could have, I could have known that myself. But when you went to a facility where you were forced to experience just these very simple basic things, it changed your life. Yeah, it's difficult for people to hear that. And it, it you know, we get 90% of our people with chronic, we, do, we only see people with really chronic health issues, that we're able to get 90% of them well. Um, Dr. Tenner tells me sometimes it's, it's, he's amazed that we're able to do that. He says we have to uh, change, the, they're, they're sick because of, not only because of what they're eating, but because of emotional factors, because of spousal factors, because of job factors. And he said it's pretty amazing we're able to help as many people as we do. And the fact of the matter is that, with giving credit to the patients, is that most of the people that we see, most of them, are ready by the time we see them to to take the action steps that they need to take. And sometimes those are not easy. Well, I'm glad whoever that was got well, whoever they are. Yeah, exactly. Or, or well for a period I of hope, time I hope, before I they hope, probably yeah, went I, back I hope to their she, normal yeah. life. <laughs> I, yeah, I hope when she gets back home that she... Um, is able to carry that forward because that's sometimes the real critical part. And that there, you know, I I did work for a year at a health retreat in Florida, and almost everybody got tremendous improvements. They they rested, they slept, they got out in the the sunlight. Some of them fasted. They went on natural foods diets. They were given counseling, and people got well. But too often, three or four or five, six months later, I see the same person come back, and they were right back in the same condition we they were in when I first saw them. So I think what the advantage is, if they can learn to actually change the conditions where they live and then get well uh, by doing the right things, then that, that fix, so to speak, is going to be much more permanent. Yes, exactly, because if the empowerment doesn't come from within you to learn to go and select the foods that you need to from, you know, the farms or the farmer's markets or your organic food store, how to prepare those foods, even for that one component, how are you going to maintain it? And when you get back to your regular life with the people that you have and your tendencies, and how are you going to get yourself to sleep by 9.30 or in bed by 9.30? You know, and that requires a tremendous amount of self-discipline. It requires the willingness to completely change your life. And that's where, you know, I purposely screen out a lot of people from, you know, my books and stuff because I don't want them wasting their time if they're not ready to change their life. And you know what else is interesting in talking about, like, the testing that we do? Some of the testing is very complex. It's not hard for the patient to do, but to get the results is fairly complex uh, uh, chemistry. And the results oftentimes point to some very simple things, like one of the tests we do, and a lot of practitioners do this now, they'll do an adrenal stress test where we'll measure cortisol levels over the course of a day. And uh, we just... You know, you look at that and you can see what a person's doing. For example, that their their cortisol levels are very high, and then they tell you they can't sleep at night. Well, you look at their cortisol level at midnight, and it's still real elevated. And you ask the person, "What are you doing before you go to bed?" Well, you know, I, I watch um, episodes of The Walking Dead. I say, "Well, <laughs> that's going to keep your cortisol levels very high." Or they're taking some medication by a physician from a physician, which we know will raise cortisol levels. And that's why they can't sleep at night. And so oftentimes the, the, the outcome of doing an extensive workup on people, sometimes, not always, 
but sometimes it is a very simple uh, uh, solution to the problem, to a complex problem. Excellent. Dr. Paul Goldberg, thank you so much for just such a wonderful um, mix of information and, and crucial foundation of health um, points here. And just wanting to let everyone know that um, although Dr. Goldberg is located in Georgia, he does accept clients um, from all over the world. People fly in to have their initial appointment and workup, and then he works with them um, you know, via Skype, phone, email, et cetera, for ongoing. So you can reach him at Goldberg Clinic, G-O-L-D, B as in Bob, E-R-G, clinic.com. And I'm Jeannie Patel-Thompson. If you have a gut disorder or know someone who wants natural healing for their gut uh, disease, you can reach me at listentoyourgut.com. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you, Jeannie.